I'm doing things a little bit differently today, if you've noticed, if you've been around. Uh, normally I have the scripture read at the top. Uh, we're going to read it because it just kind of works within the flow of, of the message. Um, but we all love a good story, don't we? Uh, my favorite story, my favorite fictional story is uh, Lord of the Rings. If you've been coming to uh, Current for any length of time, you know this. Uh, but it's not just my favorite. Ever, there's, there's so many folks who love this story. Um, because we can so easily identify with it or at least uh, be, be, uh, feel the excitement of it all. It's, like it's a story of there and back again. These little hobbits that don't have a lot going for them. They're kind of small, uh, fuzzy, not, not all that important in the grand scheme of themes. So they think, but then they're invited onto this adventure. And uh, though they kind of start at it a little bit reluctantly, uh, at the end of it all, they are, they are swept up in, w- in the reality of being a part of amazing things that they never would have even dreamed of. And I think we love stories like these because we identify with them. We all long for more purpose, uh, to, to the chance to be a part of bigger and greater things. Uh, and that's the amazing thing about what God invites us into. He invites us into his story, which is just so much bigger than anything we can imagine or hope for on our own. Um, you know, in a way that's far greater than Frodo or Bilbo Baggins, or even the, uh, of the story of Esther today that we'll look at, where she saves her people, God calls us into, he invites us into the redeeming of all things. He invites us into the story of, of the things that he cares about, seeking justice, bringing the, the, uh, seeking the betterment of society, bringing healing where there's brokenness and pain, and most importantly, bringing the message of hope, love, and eternal life in Jesus Christ. Uh, it's a story that's just so much bigger than ourselves, but he, he invites us into it, and we get to play a part in that. What Esther shows us is uh, we are all given assignments. As we become followers of his, or if you're not, this is the invitation to you, he gives us assignments to be on, on, on uh, you know, serving in our roles to serve him in these ways and, and love the world around us alongside of him, uh, young and old, Male, female, rich, or poor. He gives us all these assignments, but the question that bubbles up to the service pretty quickly, as you'll see uh, when, we, when we read the text, is will we act? You know, in our life season, in, our, in the stage uh, where we're working, in our neighborhoods, wherever it might be, wherever God has us, will we act for the sake of uh, joining God in the things that he cares about? Um, so how I want to do this is, is look at the story of Esther. It's a great story. And then uh, draw some thoughts out for how God invites us into his greater story of, of love for the world. So the story of Esther is kind of placed in this triplet of books. If you were here last week when we studied the, the book of Nehemiah, you know this. Um, it, Esther, uh, Ezra, I should say, is the first book. Uh, Nehemiah and Esther are three books that are told that, that, that are the story of about the same thing, and that is God saving his people and restoring them out of captivity and back into their promised land in, in Jerusalem. They all happen about the same time, um, and Esther, uh, Esther is... Um, if, if you want to know the, the, time, the timing of how it works, the date, she's actually uh, a little bit before Nehemiah and Ezra. So Ezra and Nehemiah are back in Jerusalem a few years after Ezra, excuse me, after Esther, and they are there back in uh, the middle of the 4th century B.C. Esther is a couple of decades back, probably one decade back in the early uh, century, 4th uh, century B.C. And so she's telling these events of how she kind of sets them up to do their thing. Okay, so that's kind of the timeline of it. Um, they're the last books before the New Testament, before the, the announcement of Jesus' birth. Uh, here's the last little bit of the Old Testament. 
And so Esther's story is set in, in captivity. Uh, the Jewish people are captives of the Persian Empire. They had been conquered by the Babylonian Empire. Uh, it wasn't too long before the Persian Empire conquered the Babylonians. And so when Esther starts, chapter 1, King Xerxes, the Persian king, is in power. And he's got a lot of power. I mean, it extends all the way from Egypt to India, 127 provinces. And he kind of has an ego to match that power. So he throws this huge party in the very beginning of the story for 180 days, essentially to display his wealth, show off how cool he is. And so he has everybody in the, in the capital city of Susa come and celebrate with them. He invites them into the palace and he tells his servants, hey, fill everybody's glasses with wine as much as they want. And they, he serves them each with their own separate, like unique golden goblet, each from uh, one of the conquered kingdoms. That's the sky, okay? And so towards the end of this celebration, all these festivities, uh, he gets to thinking, probably when he's high in spirits, a little, little drunk, no doubt, he said, you know what? Let's have my wife come and just so I can just kind of show her off. Queen Vashti, she was known for being a very beautiful woman. So he sends servants saying, you know, get her over here. Now, ladies, how would you respond to that request? Uh, right? Uh, she sends back to the king uh, through the servants, essentially saying, yeah, take a hike. I'm not coming. I'm not going to be your, your trophy here. Um, to which King Xerxes is inc- incredibly embarrassed. I mean, you can imagine. Here they are in the, you know, it, j- it just took, took the wind out of these, these, this party. Um, and then the most bizarre of scenes unfolds. Uh, his advisors come up to him and say, uh, King Xerxes, you know, illustrious one, um, very tactfully, you, they, they word this, that, but they basically say this, like, okay, not only do you have a problem here, but uh, word's already getting out that the queen rejected you, so all these other wives, all these other women, uh, listen, listen to how they say it. If, if this keeps happening, verse 18 of chapter 1, there will be no end of disrespect and discord. Um, and then they say, we have an idea, we have an idea. You should banish Queen Vashti and write an edict saying that you're going to replace her. And so uh, the king, uh, and then they, they, they say with this reasoning, then when the king's edict is proclaimed throughout all the vast realm, all the women will respect their husbands from the least to the greatest, which sort of makes you shake your head. Um, it, gets, it gets a little more interesting here. So sometime later after that, uh, it tells us that, that King Xerxes was a little bit rueful about this whole deal. He was, he was kind of regretting that he had sent Queen Vashti away, which, I mean, come on, dude. Um, and so his, his, advi- his servants come and they say, you know what you should do? You should throw a beauty pageant. Bring in, all, bring in women from each of your 127 provinces and let one of these women replace Queen Vashti as your king. And so, you know, this king was like, that sounds like a good idea. The problem with this contest is that you became the property of the king. Uh, so there's that. Esther was one of the people who was, one of the, one of the women who was selected. She's a Jewish orphan, uh, probably really young, actually, and she had been raised by Mordecai, her cousin. Her, her cousin, who from the very beginning was coaching her, don't breathe a word that you're a Jew. He just anticipated that if that word got out, she'd be in trouble. But So Esther is kind of taken in. She, she's placed into the harem, and she undergoes, along with all these other women, about a year's worth of beauty treatment. Um, what we find real quickly is not only was she, she was chosen for her looks, but there's, obvious, there's a lot more going on to her. She starts to rise in favor, favor with, with the head king's eunuch who's kind of preparing this whole thing. Um, the end of that story, as we set up for today, you can look into more of these details. There's a lot of wonderful parts of the story, at least interesting, is that uh, she ultimately becomes queen, okay? So there's that. And then over on the other side, there's a bit of a subplot going on. Mordecai, 
Mordecai, her cousin who had been raising Esther, uh, he has been spending all his time at the king gates, probably doing business there, probably just to be as close to Esther as he possibly could. He overhears two king's officials conspiring to assassinate King Xerxes. So he sends word through uh, Esther's servants to her. She tells King Xerxes. They look into it. They find out that, that this plot was legitimate. They thwart it, and Mordecai is given credit in the king's records for saving the king. Then there's this guy named Haman. Haman is just this evil dude. You know the kind of person who you know, is so people savvy that they just kind of worm their way up to the top, and nobody sees, I mean, the, the boss doesn't see through it, but everybody else does? That's, that's Haman. Like He just kind of rises up to the party. He's just, he's just a crook, really deceptive. King Xerxes doesn't really see it. Essentially establishes Haman as second in command. Um, even at one point saying, you got to bow to him. Uh, when he was out by the, the city gates, Mordecai uh, said, no, I'm not going to do that. I got a little crick in my, my knee. I'm not going to bow. Probably because he was a follower of God and he didn't serve or bow down to anyone else. Anyways, what that meant, what Haman got really upset with this. I mean, just... Mordecai became a stench to Haman. Not, not only so, such that uh, Haman uh, went to plot and scheme how to kill Mordecai, he did that, but he wanted to take it further, not just kill Mordecai, but kill all of Mordecai's people as well, all the Jews. So he goes into the king's presence, again, probably when they're a little bit drunk, and he persuades the king to carry this thing out, to kill all the Jews. He even says, I'm gonna f- I'll fund this personally. The king is just like, no, you don't have to do that. They cast lots, and the day falls uh, 12 months later for them to carry this thing out. The edict is, si- edict is signed. Uh, you can, anybody in the kingdom can co- kill a Jew, Jew anywhere on this day, and the Jew can't uh, defend themselves, and you can just take their, pl- you can plunder them entirely. So, I mean, it, it's so crazy. I mean, after this is said, check out, this is chapter 3. Um, and then going into chapter 15, right after this edict goes out, there's this eerie verse. Then the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city was bewildered. Which that sort of makes sense. I mean, not only were the Jews like, what in the world? But everybody in that capital city or throughout the kingdom is like, man, if this king will do this to that people group, I mean, who's to say we're not next? Still, of course, the Jews are just like terrified. They don't know what to do. Doom is kind of lingering over them. Um, that brings us to chapter 4, which we're going to look at here today. It starts with Mordecai hearing, this, uh, hearing about the edict, tearing his clothes, putting on sackcloth, which that's essentially really uh, uncomfortable clothes, putting ashes on his hair, basically not only in a form of protest, but just in, in spiritual angst of saying, God, we, well, what's going to happen here? Um, and uh, what happens is uh, he, he goes throughout the city. He ultimately gets to the, the city gates, and he's just wailing the entire time. So obviously creating quite a, steam, uh, a scene. And it's at this time that Esther hears about it, sends clothes through messengers to Mordecai and says, hey, get yourself together. What's going on? Uh, Mordecai refuses the clothes, but with Esther's attention, uh, he passes along word through the messenger. Here, here's the text we look at today. Esther, starting in verse uh, 4, starting in verse 7. Mordecai told him everything, that is the messenger, that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, which again is the capital city, in order to show to Esther and explain to her, and he told, her, told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence to beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hathak, that is the messenger, went back and reported to Esther what, what Mordecai had said. 
Then she instructed the messenger to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spare their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back his answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Now God gives us assignments uh, he gives us rules to plays, life seasons, uh, situations, stories of our own to act a part of his greater story, his story of redemption, his story of renewing all things. And, and so it, it, comes up, it comes down to, uh, will we step into that? Will we act, and when, it, when it's necessary, will we act decisively? He gives us each unique assignments. You know, this is something that has been really st- sticking out to me as I've studied not only Esther, but Nehemiah last week, and in context, this greater story that is all happening at the same time. Remember, Ezra, the book of Nehemiah, and the book of, of Esther were all written about the same time, and they're all doing essentially the same thing, helping restore, helping save the people, bringing them back out of captivity and setting them back up in Jerusalem. Ezra, he was the, the spiritual leader. He was the priest. He's the kind of guy, we talked about this last week, that typically when you look to the Bible, you think that's the person, that's the kind of leader the Bible is going to highly esteem. Be like this guy, the spiritual one. But what's fascinating is when he gets back to Jerusalem with a, with a small remnant of, 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 of people, of survivors, he, he identifies that, a, that the wall is broken and needs to be rebuilt, otherwise they're sitting ducks to their enemies. He tries to rebuild this wall a number of times, actually about two times, is unsuccessful, is sitting dead in the water, but he doesn't realize that God is actually raising up somebody other than Ezra. He needs, Ezra needs a Nehemiah, the professional, we called it this last week. Uh, you know, he was a cupbearer to the king, but he, he, he was a leader. This guy was able to, move, he was a mover and shaker. He could take resources here, identify what needed to be done, put people in places where they needed to be. And in that way, Ezra and Nehemiah together got the walls built up and they got spiritually restored, all those sorts of things. But guess how this plays out? None of that would have been possible. None of that would have ever happened if it hadn't been first for Esther saving them. Remember, Esther happened a little bit before. These guys wouldn't even have been around if 12 months from our time of the story of Esther had played out the way they're supposed to play out. Esther is in a position of royalty. She's a a legislator, if you will. And she's in a place where she was able to act. But here, again, as we think about, God gives us unique roles. Even within the story of Esther, there are several roles that play out in order for Esther, for God through Esther, to save the people. Mordecai. Mordecai. I, you know, I hadn't really noticed before. I, when I study this text in the past, I'm always thinking about Esther because she's a stud. She's amazing. She's amazing. But Mordecai plays just as important, if not, if not more important, dare I say, than Esther. What is Mordecai's role in this situation? He's a supporting actor, okay? He supports, he enables, he empowers Esther to act in her time of, of, of this decision. Um, and he does that in a number of ways. Do you see that? For starters, he raises awareness. Uh, imagine if you were Mordecai, you know, putting on 
sackcloth and ashes, tearing your clothes, and running around the streets wailing. Uh, would you enjoy that? I mean, that would be, yeah, that's pretty hard. He had, he had to go to that extent to get word to Esther, which, by the way, shows you how isolated Esther was in her harem. He, had, he went all the way to help raise the issue so Esther took notice and could start to see the problem, which she otherwise wouldn't have seen. He raises awareness. He also uh, prepares and equips her. You see in verses 7 and 8, uh, he gets her well-informed. You know, he's, he even gives the exact amount of money that Haman offered in order to carry out this plan. In verse 8, here's some corroborating evidence to strengthen the case. He gives, her, uh, he gives uh, the messenger a copy of the edict that the king signed. And then finally, he gives her a course of action. Verse 8, go into the presence of the king. Beseech him. You've got, you got to do something about this. And then, uh, perhaps most importantly, uh, when she balks, when she hesitates at Mordecai's request here because she's risking her life, he remains steadfast. Esther, you've got to do this. I mean, I think you were set up to do this for such a time as this. Um, which, incidentally, it's worth considering that this wasn't some like, oh, Mordecai, what's it to you? There's no real risk to you. I mean, this is just for your gain. No. Remember, Mordecai had been raising Esther as a daughter. Remember, Mordecai had been coaching Esther from the very beginning, don't breathe a word that you're a Jew. If you do that, you're going to get into trouble. And yet, here in this time, he was willing to risk probably the most important thing in his life, the one he had always spent all his time at the king gates, looking over, watching over. He was which incidentally is, is a really... Um, a powerful thought toward parenting. You know, as you think about, you know, obviously parents are called to protect, um, take care of, of, of our little ones, but ultimately Mordecai shows us that we have to steward even our little ones, even our children for God's kingdom, for his purposes, for his redeeming story. Um, Mordecai puts it up, puts it before Esther so that Esther can act. Uh, now we all need Mordecai's. Do we not? We need Mordecai's. Uh, here's a question for you. Where can you be a support in order to make a difference? Where, you know, where's a supporting role in God's greater story? Can you have impact through supporting someone, through empowering them, through helping them? Um, I imagine uh, most, if, just not, if, if not all of us, uh, have Mordecai's in our life or have had Mordecai's in our life. Y- you've heard me from this stage uh, any, uh, a few times share that, that there's just been people in my life where I'm, just, I'm balking. I'm sitting here like there's no way I can go forward in this way or that way. And folks, some even in this room saying, yeah, you can, because God's with you. Do you trust him? Do you feel like he's in this? Do you feel like he's moving? Will will he take care of you, even though you might not understand? Yes, you can do it. We all need Mordecai's. Um, You know why I think this is especially important for us to just stop and digest for a second is I feel like culturally speaking, we tend to downplay the value of the supporting role. Don't we? I mean, when you watch the Oscars, I imagine that most people watching the Oscars, most people, not all, are watching the Oscars like, yeah, yeah, supporting actors, cool, cool, but who's, who are the main people? They're at the end, that's what we're getting to. Fast forward, if it's on Diva, whatever. Um, but I don't think God sees it that way. I mentioned earlier that uh, I like Lord of the Rings. Um, it's, it, you know, I like it so much that I've probably, I've, I've kept up with it maybe a little bit more than I should. Uh, that's not true, I, I enjoy it. 
Um, but y- you can imagine as, as Tolkien's books became more and more popular w- within his life, uh, he had a lot of people kind of asking him about it, sending him a correspondence saying, hey, you know, tell us what's going on behind this plot. Like, what are these characters about? All those sorts of things. So he, we, have, we have records of him sending uh, to different readers and different fans uh, his responses for what's going on behind the scenes. And what's always been troubling for a lot of the Lord of the Rings nerds uh, is that he, in a, in a couple of correspondence, he talks about a chief of heroes in his books. A chief of heroes. Like the one main, like if there is a hero that represents like Lord, it's this. And what's always troubling is whenever that was used in chief of heroes, it's always a little unclear based on grammar, based on context. Was he refor- referring to Aragorn or Samwise Gamgee? Now if you know the movies, Aragorn, he's the returning king. He's the one with the reforged sword. You know, he's, he's the savior type figure of that, of that show. Samwise Gamgee, on the other hand, chief of heroes, this dude was Frodo's like sidekick. And he was awkward. I mean, he's always saying awkward. That the most, I mean, they're at the bottom of Mount Doom. He's like, should we make some lunch? I mean, he's just like, that's kind of his guy. And yet he was fiercely loyal. He was fiercely loyal. And the more you like take in the story, the more you realize, oh my goodness, there's just no flying chance that Frodo would have made it anywhere near that mount had it not been for Samwise any number of times, including at least one time where Sam is basically like told to go away by Frodo, but he sticks around and then just saves his tail. Um, and so the, these readers are like, who's the chief hero? Like, it's got to be going, I don't know. They, so finally, one of them had an idea. Hey, we should ask Tolkien's son, Christopher. Like, he, he probably knows from his, his dad. So they, they wrote him, and Christopher wrote back saying, with, absolute, with, with, with certainty and very succinctly, the chief of heroes was Sam. His dad, Sam, was... I think we so often undervalue, we underestimate what God is doing in the various roles that we play. And where he calls us to be re- help, serving alongside him and others in the redeeming of all things. In, in bringing the betterment of the society and loving others in sharing God's love through Jesus. A supporting role is, is absolutely vital and important. We need Mordecai, Mordecai's. We need to be Mordecai's. Uh, this text, if, if nothing else, for me, has really been helping me. Who are, who are the more, who, where can I be a Mordecai? And there's a number of people who have come to, my, come to my list, and I'm just like, yeah. Where can you be in a supporting role in order to, to make a difference for God's kingdom? And then, of course, we have uh, Esther, the leading lady. Uh, oh, Esther is awesome. I mean, she's, can you call a gal a stud? I'm not sure, but you know what I'm saying. She's just like, she's solid. Um, now, does she balk when, she, when Mordecai first brings her, like, hey, you need to go to the king? Uh, yeah, she does. That's because she knows, she takes a risk assessment. You're asking me to risk my life. You're asking me to risk everything. She said, you know the law. If somebody goes into the king's presence, into his chambers without being summoned, if he doesn't extend this gold scepter thing, I'm gone. And by the way, this is, this is a, a, with a king who had a track record for disposing of queens, this is a king who had a record of, you know, writing an edict to, like, annihilate people. Uh, this is risky for Esther. And yet, uh, when Mordecai uh, challenges her with, who knows, but that you have come for, for, to, to your royal position for such a time as this, she becomes resolved to act. Notice this. She doesn't just go forward saying, okay, Mordecai told me so, so, that, so okay, I'll do it. This thing becomes hers. Listen to this. Who knows that you've come uh, to your position for such a time as this? Verse 15, Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, 
Gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. I I love this. Uh, We see that the king chose Esther for her looks, but we see that God chose Esther for her character. You'll have to read the rest of the story. I don't have time to go into it now. It's amazing. She's brilliant, the way that she sets Haman up and basically exposes him right in front of the king. I mean, it's just, and then then even like the way that she, you know, uh, crafts the edict, eventually the king says, okay, write a new edict. The problem is you can't revoke previous edicts, so she couldn't just say, I don't kill the Jews. So she had to like somehow write, it's brilliant. She wrote another edict that said, the Jews can kill you. And then basically a day of, they, you know, gather and, and all those sorts of things. And, and it would turn from a day of doom to a day of, of victory and actually celebration. Um, they were delivered. Um, she's brilliant. We need Esther's. Here's the question for, for this part. Where can you boldly step up? Where, where might God be calling you to act decisively? Wherever you might be in your life situation, um, the world desperately needs people who are willing to risk themselves. Maybe it's our, our, our reputation at work. Maybe it's reputation with a friend. Maybe it's putting our, our rising position, you know, for the sake of helping somebody that society or the company or whatever culture doesn't, uh, it tends to neglect. I don't know what it is. But where, where does God have you in terms of a workplace, neighborhood? It could be your school. Recently, uh, Caleb just had his first day of kindergarten. Which is, which is really fun and nerve-wracking all at the same time. Uh, this dude has changed uh, schools, daycares, that sort of thing, five times in five years, I think, uh, I think is the deal. Um, but this is kindergarten, so it's like, all right, uh, our first one, it means like, it's, you know, we're, we're kindergartners in a sense in terms of our parenting. But we took him, we took him down uh, to the school, and it, it's a fun school. I mean, it's incredibly, incredibly diverse, which is so awesome. And, you know, Cindy and I are not, uh, you know, new to, you know, a, a lot of diversity. I mean, we're not strangers to it, but this, I mean, we're talking a lot of first-generation immigrants. English is more sprinkled around almost than other languages. Uh, the families are amazing. They're awesome. Um, so we're really excited about it. But, you know, you know pulling back the, the, the curtain for you a little bit, if, 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 if we're honest about it, a lot of us was, was nervous. Like, will Caleb fit in? Will he, feel, will he be able to make his way? On paper, uh, the school doesn't have the best of the best you know, scores, it's massive, um, and yet the more we're there, we're more like, this is amazing. But anyways, at, uh, you know, the first day of school, uh, or, or, you know, what we've, we've found in his class, it's like Mexico's represented, Japan, China, Kazakhstan, Israel, uh, Bosnia, uh, a number of, of, of others. It was interesting, though. Cindy came, uh, was reflecting on this after the first day of school, and she had just met some of these families that day, and um, she... Uh, she was like, oh my goodness, the, the three families from different nationalities that we had met that day uh, were from uh, Mexico, China, and Kazakhstan. The three exact places, by the way, that Cindy and I both together collectively have spent time as missionaries. And we're like, what? <laughs> How can we not see this as God's assignment for us now? How can we not see this as God saying, hey, I've got a, I've got a spot for you? We went to the after-school picnic on Friday, and it's just like, okay, um, where has God placed you? Where can you step up? 
Where can you be a part of his, his story of, of, of bringing light, bringing restoration, wholeness, where you can serve and put yourself aside for the sake of loving others? Um, and, and the driving question of Esther is then, uh, will you step up? Will you act um, when the time comes or in the season that you're in? Now look, God gives us assignments. He gives us roles to partner with Him in greater ways than we realize, bigger, bigger than our own selves. So we need to be mindful and look for our parts, our roles to play. But there's something far greater and more powerful happening in this text uh, that we need to consider. And that is this. We not only see our roles and how we need to think about stepping into it, but we see what God's role has been and how He sets us up to be a role and, 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 and on assignment for him. For if Mordecai was a supporting actor and Esther was a leading lady, Jesus Christ was the main actor. Uh, God is the main actor, even in this story, and, he is the, and therefore in what he's done, he is able to set us up and support us. Um, he is the true and greater Esther. He is the true and greater uh, Mordecai. Look, Esther has this amazing impact in history. I mean, she saved the people. That's pretty cool. But how the Bible sees it in this one God, one story, the most amazing thing about Esther is not so much that she saved her people. That's awesome. It's that she actually points ahead to the one who saves all people. Um, for while Esther risked the palace in order to save the people, Jesus Christ gave up the heavenly palace to save all people. And when Esther risked her life saying, when I, if I perish, I perish, Jesus Christ on the cross said, when I perish, I perish. And then Mordecai, when he said to Esther, if you remain silent, someone else is going to be raised up. Somebody's going to do this. In other words, God's gonna, God has a plan to save his people. But the power of the cross is, if Jesus had remained silent, if he had not chosen to act, there was nobody else. We were all lost. He alone could live the life that we can't live, sinless, perfect, loving towards others, loving to God, and then he ultimately, on the cross, dying the death that we all deserve so that in him there is eternal life, forgiveness of sins, a restored relationship with God the Father, eternal life. In other words, because he has done that, we can now play our part. Do you notice this? I mean, in Jesus, because of what he's done, in taking on our assignments to live for him, he's removed risk from the equation. Do you see that? What do we risk if, we're, if we have eternal life, security, worth, value in Jesus? What can we risk? In the, in the workplace, there is nothing to risk. Our reputation, our reputation we are, we are ch- children of, of God. Our physical well-being, if you know, things were happening to lead that way. No, physically, we are even through death into the next life, we will be with him. We can't, he has taken out the risk. He is the main actor so that now he can support us. He's the true and greater Esther as he is the true and greater Mordecai. And so now we can step into these positions, these places to serve and love him, redeeming, bringing healness and wholeness and ultimately pointing people to Jesus. And so as you think about uh, you know, the assignment God's given you, or maybe, by the way, you're here today and you have not received the, the gospel, the good news of Jesus. Here it is. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. That is the gospel in a nutshell. That is the good news of Jesus that we receive. 
And that is what we, as, as we become his followers, uh, offer to others. Uh, let me end with this, this last quote, a very powerful quote, famous. Um, this is from Jim Elliott. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Let's pray.